All right. Hey, everybody. Thanks. Uh, I'm Dave. I'm not Ann. Uh, the way this is going to work is that I'm going to do the first half of our talk, and then I'm going to hand off to my lovely wife to do the second half of the talk, because uh, we're a, an author team. Uh, I'm a geologist. She's a biologist. And we're going to be telling you about uh, the, the work that we've been doing over the last few years that is captured and summarized in these books. So you should be seeing that the... the um, uh, the covers of the, the books that Anne and I have been working on for the last 15 years or so, where we investigate the connections between soil health and human health, about how the way that we treat the land affects the way the land can treat us. Uh, so I'm gonna, my job today is to give you sort of an overview that leads up to the What's Your Food Ate book, the most recent one in, in our series of books, that really is looking at connecting soil health and human health. If you want to connect with us outside the conference, feel free to check us out at our website or on Twitter that's up on the screen now. But let me get into trying to share with you the journey that Ann and I have been on, uh, investigating the connections that really led ultimately to us working a lot on the connections between soil health and human health. Why the health of the land is actually fairly intimately connected to the health of not only just whole human societies in terms of our ability to feed uh, the world, but also into our individual health in terms of what's actually in our food. Because when we, and what we'll do is we'll walk you through the way that how our farming practices affect soil health, how the soil health affects the health of our crops and, and the botanical world in general, how those two factors, soil health and, and uh, the, the health of plants, in turn influence the health of our livestock, and how that all wraps up into influencing human health. So there's a lot of dots to connect, going from soil health all the way through to human health, but that's what Anne and I have been working on, and what we laid out in What's Your Food Ate, and that's what we'll try and give you the background for today for understanding those connections and the science behind them, because in the end, what you can really kind of conclude from the, the work we've put together and the, the work of many other people that we've uh, synthesized is that soil health is our health, that our health is intimately connected to the state of the land and its ability not just to feed us, but its ability to nourish us. So let me get started. My job in the first half of this is to go through how farming practices affect soil health and how soil health wraps up to influence um, uh, the health of uh, the botanical world. Anne will then pick up the baton for the second half of our talk and look at the connections on uh, with the botanical health the health of our livestock and what that all rolls up into what's in our food and how that can support our health or not as the case unfortunately has been under the world of modern conventional farming so let's talk about soil health for a little bit um, soil is something that can have health um, it's something that people argue about the actual definitions of but there's two ways to look at soil degradation which impairs soil health and one is the physical loss of the soil itself soil erosion and the other is the loss of soil organic matter and the degradation of soil life which turns out to be very central to the provisioning of our crops with the mineral elements and the, and the phytochemicals, things that we'll go into in more detail on, in this talk um, in, as, as they get into our diet. So let me start here with the, with the UN's global map of soil degradation from a number of years back. It's painting with a fairly broad brush, but gives you the feel. There's a lot of red on that map. Now, the best estimates that um, geologists have um, and agronomists have made globally is that we've degraded somewhere between a quarter and a third of the world's agricultural production capacity already through degrading this health of the land that we uh, uh, of agricultural land the land that we depend on to grow our food um, and I like to use this map to start because it paints the problem of soil degradation as truly a global problem 
as we'll show uh, through this talk and in our work in What's Your Food Ate, it also amounts to an individual problem for eaters when we're thinking about how our food was grown, literally what our food ate on its way to our tables, and the starting point for that is how we treat the land, the state of the land, and global soil degradation is a very real and global problem today. If you look at the UN's most recent report on the state of the soil globally from back in 2015, they reported that humanity, the global us, are losing about 0.3% of our global food production capacity each and every year to soil erosion and degradation. And you know, a very fundamental um, uh, requirement for survival is at provisioning of adequate calories, getting enough to eat. Uh, the quality of that food, what's in it, and what we choose to eat, we'll go further into that a little later, but when we look just at our ability to feed ourselves now, we're losing 0.3% a year to soil degradation and soil loss. That 0.3% doesn't sound like a lot in any given year, and it's not, but if it happens in every year, year after year, it can really add up. And at this pace, we're on track to lose another roughly quarter to a third of our ability to feed ourselves on this planet through continually continual degradation of soil health and soil fertility. That does not bode well for our ability to feed ourselves later on this century. So what's been one of the big uh, problems in terms of uh, maintaining the health and fertility of our agricultural lands? It turns out that the plow, that most iconic of agricultural implements, is actually has been a major factor in the degradation of soil, and particularly soil erosion in, in societies around the world, and has actually affected the course and fate of human societies. Uh, now, what is it about tillage, the act of plowing, that undermines soil health? It leads to erosion of the soil. Why? Because it leaves the ground bare and vulnerable to erosion by water or wind in the time right after you plow. A freshly plowed field that gets rained on with an intense rainfall is a field that's going to shed sediment. It'll, you'll lose soil, and it turns out at a pace that's difficult for nature to replace. Now, the start of this talk might be a little... Um, uh, a, a little on the, the downside in terms of a, a depressing message in terms of how much we have degraded land in the past through, uh, through generations of, of over tillage in many parts of the world um, before even the world of modern um, agriculture contributed to the pace of decline. But that's what I wrote about in Dirt the Erosion of Civilizations, the nature of the problem uh, and the backstory of human societies about how Society after society has degraded the land that we uh, use to grow our food and how that has affected civilizations in the past. And I'm going to spare you all the detail of all the civilizations I wrote about in dirt, but I want to highlight uh, the one in particular here, that of classical Greece, because it so well illustrates the problem of, of how um, frequent relying on relying on too frequent a tillage uh, on plowing too often can lead to wholesale loss of the soil off of a fairly broad landscape. So if we go to classical Greece and look at soil, we can document in the archaeological record that cycles of so erosion and soil formation in ancient Greece began back in the Bronze Age, the, the, the thousands of years before BC, uh, right after the introduction of plow-based agriculture. So when plows arrived from sources further to the east on the Greek peninsula, the, the landscape looked about like this. This is a cross-section from Tier, Tier Van Andel's and, and Chris Reynolds' work back in the 1980s looking at the state of the Greek landscape uh, at the end of the last ice age, at the dawn of the agricultural age. There was open oak woodland on the hills with the one to three foot thick soil on the hillsides and river sediments down in the valley bottoms. Well, guess where people started farming? Well, on the flat, well-watered, easily worked ground next to the big rivers. And as their population grew and spread up onto the hillsides, cultivation spread from the valley bottoms right on up the hills and eventually 
you know, there there's uh, uh, fields from the valley bottoms uh, well up onto the hills, and that started the, the clock ticking, in effect, on the loss of soil because the um, tillage of the land and then the exposure of the soil to uh, erosion by water and by wind eventually stripped the soil off the hillsides, piled it up down in the valley bottoms, and you can still see in many parts of the Greek landscape these upland areas that are uh, stripped of, of fertile soil where it's very difficult now to grow things in places where there are archaeological evidence of, of uh, wheat harvests uh, back in the Bronze Age. Um, and that soil basically ended up down in the valley bottoms. And if there's, we know one thing about uh, the nature of being able to feed people on a landscape, uh, it's that if you have soil in a and you pile it all up in one spot you're not going to be able to feed as many people it's the area that's covered with fertile soil that's actually very useful for agriculture so what did this do to classical greek society this is the graph that really started me working on this problem of long-term uh, soil erosion effects which led to the connections that ann and i are working on now on the connections between soil health and human health but this graph illustrates the connections on societal health so this is a graph of population density of the southern argolid a, a particular region in southern in Greece that um, archaeologists, again Van Andels and Runnell, reconstructed the population density of this area from 6000 BC up to about the present. Uh, and you'll notice that uh, there, the population rose into the Bronze Age, crashed into a Dark Age before the age of Classical Greece. It rose again in the Classical Age, crashed again in the Dark Age before the Modern Age. There's been three cycles of civilizations on this landscape, and there's two interesting things about this graph. Uh, one is trivial, and that is, in my view, sort of why the amplitude of this, these cycles increased, why there, we can support more people today in the Modern Age than in the Classical Age, and they could support more people than they did in the Bronze Age. And that answer is obviously technology. We have better technology today than we did in the Bronze Age. No mystery there. But what really intrigued me about this graph was, was not so much the amplitude of the signal going up with each civilization, but the periodicity. Why a thousand year, a couple thousand year run up and then a crash for a thousand years, another um, uh, peak of human population, then another crash for a thousand years or so, and then onto the modern age. There's not a lot of places on Earth where three agricultural civilizations have occupied the same topography at different points in time. And that periodicity, white societies would last a few thousand years um, uh, before uh, a crash into a dark age uh, was something that really intrigued my imagination. Uh, and, and as you might expect, it connects to soil erosion. But in researching this, I was intrigued to find that I was not the first person to recognize this pattern. The classical Greek philosopher Plato, for example, back in you know, the 4th century BC, noticed the erosion event that happened in the Bronze Age, that, the bronze, that led to the, the Dark Age right before the uh, time of classical Greece when Plato was writing, when he wrote, the rich soft soil has all run away, leaving the land nothing but skin and bone. But in those days the damage had not taken place, the hills had high crests, the rocky plain of Phellus was covered with rich soil, and the mountains were covered by thick woods, of which there are some traces today. He was recognizing and documenting the role that farming practices played in the erosion of soils off the Greek landscape, and he connected that to the land being able to support fewer people at a time when the Greeks wanted all the people they could recruit for their armies to, to keep the Persians out and the sort of early geopolitical conflicts. Uh, but what I was curious about was his observations about how certain river mouths, that uh, the mouths of, of valleys that were well farmed, were building out big sediment-rich deltas into the Mediterranean where the rivers that flowed out of the forest were, were flowing clear and clean out into, into, into the sea. He basically recognized the connection between how erosion 
affects farmland and that integrates up into affecting human populations on a landscape. Now we can fast forward now a couple thousand years to the modern age and we'll talk a little bit about my home state of, uh, of Washington here. Um, this is a slide of the Palouse. It's a winter wheat field in eastern Washington and it illustrates quite well that the problem, the erosive problems associated with tillage, with plowing, uh, are not things that are just relegated to the deep past of ancient Greece and, or in many other societies. This slide really captures why a geologist like myself would look at a freshly plowed field and go, wow, that's a disaster waiting to happen if only it rains. All the little channels that you see on this, on this um, photograph now are channels that we call rills. You could erase them with a single pass of the plow, plow right over them. But what happens if they keep happening year after year, stripping little bits of soil, shuttling it downstream, downhill, and then eventually downstream on its way to the sea, and adding up year after year? What you can get is something like this. This is also in the Palouse region of Washington. It's in the um, uh, it's in the eastern part of Washington state, the dry part of the state, and this fence line up here in the upper right-hand corner of the image is a fence that the farmer built uh, originally back in 1911 when the land surface was up here at this upper orange line. And the only thing that happened in this field is that to the left of this fence, uh, it was regularly plowed um, and farmed in that winter wheat uh, fallow rotation that was typical of the region for 50 years to 1961 when the photograph was taken. And the ground sir, this little cliff developed around the edge of the field. Now I haven't told you how high that cliff is, but this little black line running from where I'm sort of circling the cursor from down there to up there is a washed out uh, uh, increment of one foot on a survey rod that's uh, weakly expressed in the negative, but is there. This is a five foot cliff that developed from 50 years of agricultural erosion, that's about a foot a decade, that's about an inch a year. There's nowhere on earth that soil forms that fast. And it illustrates the problem that can arise with the over-application of tillage, leaving the land bare and vulnerable to erosion, and that, that can play out over generations. This is half a century worth of erosion that left the side of the field standing five feet high above the rest of the field. Now, I hope you're sitting there thinking, well, well isn't this an extreme example? And yes, of course it is. I'm a professor. I like to find extreme examples to illustrate the points I'm making. So, you know, this is one corner of one field in one part of the country. Let's zoom out a little bit and look at how the problem of land degradation affected the entire um, Piedmont country, the hill country in the American Southeast, running from Virginia up here in the upper right-hand corner down to Alabama in the lower left-hand corner. And this gray noodle shows you uh, the, the, the Piedmont area and the amount of soil that has been eroded since the dawn of, of colonial agriculture in this region. And you notice as most of it is gray, some of it is black, so four to more than 10 inches of topsoil loss across this broad region about the size of the Roman heartland, another area that was historically uh, denuded by um, early farming practices. And this is actually a big deal. When you read the original uh, journals of the farmers and plantation owners that were first clearing this land and starting to farm it, um, there was six to 12 inches of rich black earth over the reddish subsoil. So the loss of four to, ten, to more than 10 inches of topsoil, it's virtually stripping the topsoil off this entire region uh, within just a couple hundred years of, of farming practices that used methods and techniques not all that unlike what the Greeks and the Romans uh, used long before us in the North American colonies here. Um, so this um, problem of soil loss and soil degradation is even a global problem. As part of the research for dirt, I basically compiled all the erosion data I could find off of to illustrate how fast farms are eroding 
globally, worldwide, uh, using conventional con modern conventional techniques, um, tillage and, and modern agrochemistry agri in, in effect. And what I came up with is a global average of about a millimeter and a half a year of soil loss off of, mo of agricultural fields. It varies greatly, of course, depending on what farm you're on. You can find farms in that original map that I showed you with the red zones all around the world. In each of those red zones, you could find farms that are actually building soil but we're not quite there yet in the story. That's the optimistic second half of this talk. Um, and would have, if we look today at the average rate of topsoil loss globally, it's about a millimeter and a half a year. That means it takes only about 20 years or so to erode an inch of fertile topsoil. Uh, and most natural landscapes only have six to 12 inches of fertile soil, which means we can plow, literally plow through the ability of the land to support great harvests without supplemental agrochemistry, without chemical fertilizers. It only takes us decades to do that. Um, how fast does nature rebuild soils? That's the numbers down here at the bottom in blue. Fraction of a millimeter a year, 2% of a millimeter a year was the global average I came up with from the synthesis that I published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences back in 2007. At that pace, it takes you know or centuries to millennia to rebuild that inch of fertile soil that modern farming practices can shed off the landscape in just decades. Therein lies the problem with um, a key problem with maintaining agriculture uh, with the techniques we're using in modern agriculture. Fortunately, there's ways to, to, to fix this problem and get around it, um, but you don't have to take my word for the, the magnitude of the problem. There's a, a pair of papers by Evan Thaler and Isaac Larson and colleagues uh, from the UMass Amherst um, a couple years back that measured the average rate of historical erosion across the entire Midwestern U.S., the upper, the Corn Belt and the upper Midwest. They came up with a number similar to my global number, about on just shy of two millimeters a year. Uh, the shocking thing they also came up with is that the extent of soil loss across the U.S. Corn Belt means that about a third of all the areas that we're using to grow corn across the U.S. today have already lost their entire topsoil, their A-horizon in the parlance of soil scientists. The entire topsoil, the fertile part of the soil, is missing from a third of the U.S. Corn Belt. This data all sort of puts into perspective how imperative it is that we figure out a different way to farm that does not degrade the fertility of the land and that can better support not only feeding the world, but as we'll see, better support human nutrition with more minerals and more phytochemicals in our food. But let's look briefly to wrap up this uh, um, discussion of past societies about the problems of net soil loss in the past. Uh, net soil loss of roughly a millimeter a year, and that's about the pace that the uh, that's a conservative estimate of the pace uh, I could argue for, given the data that I've just shown you. At that pace, it would take about um, 500 to 1,000 years to erode through a half meter to one meter thick, so a foot and a half to roughly three foot thick soil. That's typical of most um, hillsides around the world. And it turns out that that time scale, 1,000 years plus or minus, is approximately the lifespan of most major civilizations outside of major river floodplains. That was another aha moment I had in writing dirt. That the time frame that it would take for conventional agriculture in terms of uh, conventionally tilled fields to, to erode off the topsoil is kind of similar to how long most agricultural societies have lasted. But I also hope you're sitting there thinking, well, what about the Nile in Egypt? It's been farmed for thousands of years. Or the Tigris and Euphrates in, in the Middle East, the, the, the Indus and the Brahmaputra in India, or the big rivers of lowland China. These are all places where we know that agriculture has been practiced for thousands of years that still support large populations. So what is it about those places that seem to be perhaps a little different? And it's hidden right there in their physical geography. Because all those places I just mentioned, 
are big river floodplains. And what happens on floodplains? Well, they flood. And what comes along with the water? Well, it's not just water, but also silt, clay, sand, mineral particles. Nature can refresh and rebuild the fertility of, of uh, tilled land on flat floodplains because they're fairly flat, so erosion is slow, and they're refreshed by flooding if they're allowed to flood and not, ditch, uh, not diked off from their, their annual floods. And this is how societies were able to maintain agriculture over the long run in those parts of the world where we know of long-term agricultural civilization. So... Um, they're kind of the exceptions that help to prove the rule that once farming gets out of the valley bottoms and up onto the hillsides uh, that are vulnerable to erosion uh, by water and rain and where soil rebuilding takes place slowly under natural conditions, the clock literally starts ticking. Uh, and there's another aspect of soil degradation beside just loss of the soil itself, and that's loss of soil organic matter. This slide shows you two uh, soils from adjacent fields, literally developed on the same geology under the same climate, right across the fence from one another uh, in North Carolina. So in that gray noodle that I was showing you uh, earlier in terms of magnitude of colonial um, uh, soil loss, the loss of soil organic matter is also a big deal there. This is from the conventionally worked field over there on the right. It uh, looks like sort of cal khaki California beach sand is kind of what it looks like to me. And there's a reason for that. It is beach sand. It's Miocene age, 10 million year old beach sand. So it's an old beach that's um, uh, now well inland. Um, that it's has hardly any organic matter. Hardly any, um, you know, that, uh, there's hardly any life in the soil when we were digging this up for the comparison. The soil that's right across the fence line, it has more of a dark chocolate cake kind of a color. The difference, of course, is carbon. So And soil organic matter is roughly 40% carbon. And carbon turns out to be the key currency that drives the underground economy that helps keep land fertile that I'll get to and that Dan will be talking about a little bit more. But the key th point here is that the second element of soil degradation and the decline of soil health is turning rich, dark, carbon-rich soil like the stuff on the left into soil like that on the right. And we've done that on agricultural fields all around the world. The most recent estimate of what the extent of the loss of soil organic matter um, from um, North American Soils was published in the journal Sustainability back in 2015, uh, where the authors concluded that the soil organic matter content, and you can also read the soil carbon content, of many soils in North America is only about 50% of the level at the time when they were converted from forests or prairies to farmlands. In other words, we've lost about half of the soil organic matter in our farm soils, and that's equivalent to essentially draining the natural batteries of our soils by about 50% over just a couple hundred years. This presents a major problem for thinking about how to feed the world going forward, um, particularly as we look towards an agriculture in a post-oil world in which the reliance on synthetic nitrogen fertilizers is going to become much more problematic. So how did we get there today with, um, with modern farming practices that have resulted in you know, widespread soil erosion off of whole regions of, of our country and the degradation of soil organic matter, not only around the U.S., but globally off of many agricultural fields, taking it down by roughly half? Uh, well, there's really two factors that are the, the primary things we can point to. Heavy routine tillage is essentially the first piece of it. Uh, we, we plow, we basically have been plowing too much. Uh, and when we plow, it basically um, uh, 
aerates the soil, it exposes it to oxygen, so organic matter will oxidize, it stimulates bacteria in the soil to break down that organic matter, uh, and we're not building then up organic matter. Um, and also the overuse of synthetic nitrogen fertilizers is the second piece in terms of uh, degrading soil organic matter, because again, that can stimulate, overstimulate the, the um, um, bacteria in the soil that can uh, break down soil organic matter and accelerate its, its loss from soil profiles. So the two key backbone practices of modern conventional agriculture, routine heavy tillage and the over-application of synthetic nitrogen fertilizers, have both contributed to degrading the fertility of land and the degrading soil organic matter. They've been able, they help, have helped to maintain harvests but not to maintain the native fertility of the land, thereby setting up problems in the future. So the question that I was left with after writing dirt was actually kind of a big one. Can we reverse the historical pattern of soil erosion and soil degradation? And if so, how could we do it and how fast could it occur? And this is where we transition to the sort of the good news part of the talk because I've come around to being a bit of an optimist in thinking that we can not only restore the fertility of the world's agricultural lands that have been degraded, but we could do so remarkably fast with techniques that we already have, we already know, and that are soundly rooted in the science of soil, uh, soil ecology and, and the relationship of soil health to plant health. So I'm going to move into the second part of the, of the talk here. Um, we've looked at how farming practices can affect soil health. Now let's turn to looking at how soil health influences and translates into plant health. And that's a story that Ann and I started working on when we wrote The Hidden Half of Nature a few years back, our first uh, co-authored book that set the stage for What Your Food Ate. And what it uh, did for us is it helped provide insights into what kind of science we could use to help solve the problems that uh, were unearthed, if you'll pardon the pun, in researching the dirt book. So what are those kind of insights? Well, they flowed a lot from our garden. Anne is a biologist. She's a major league gardener. I like to think of her as a plant whisperer. She can bring plants back from the edge of death, but she also brought her soil back to life in her yard. When we bought a house in North Seattle, um, where we live back in the late 1990s, it came with soil like this khaki stuff over there on the left, a lot like that degraded um, North Carolina uh, tobacco plantation. But over the course of a, roughly a decade of intensive compost and mulching and regenerative gardening, and turned this kind of a soil, the khaki soil, into this rich black earth shown there on the right. Took it from less than 2% organic matter up to pushing 10% organic matter, and the explosion of life that happened above ground in the garden is, was a, a great joy and benefit to both Anne and I, but that this could happen so fast that we could rebuild the health and fertility of the soil in years, not decades or centuries or millennia, but in years, really put the, um, an exclamation point on the idea that we could rebuild soil fertility remarkably fast in ways that could transform agriculture and also, as it turns out, human nutrition, which we'll get to in What Your Food Ate. Who are the key players and actors? Well, what we learned in, in researching the why behind how it was that our soil in our yard was restored so fast really um, brought up the, uh, the importance and power of the soil food web. Uh, and the soil food web is something that is um, uh, basically shorthand for all the life in the soil, the organisms that are consuming each other and consuming the compost and mulch that we were layering on the soil in our yard to help build soil fertility. And all the bacteria and fungi and mycorrhizal, uh, the, the mycorrhizal fungi in the soil that were consuming and breaking down that organic matter um, were basically repurposing that organic matter and 
and the uh, elements that were contained in it back into forms that could be taken up by plants to support their growth. And it turns out that the life in the soil that that also is supporting is a great engine of getting things like mineral elements out of the soil and into our crops. Uh, why? Because uh, fungi like saprophytic fungi or fungi that, 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 that feast on dead things you know, uh, are, are supported by both organic matter and, in, in, and indirectly by plants in ways that Anne will be talking more about. But this illustrates just a fungal hyphae uh, going out through the soil that uh, latches on to mineral elements. And those fungi can basically, they're, they're specialized at removing mineral elements from the soil, things like zinc, things like iron. Uh, and then they'll trade, the, they'll bring those back to plants and they'll trade them to plants in exchange for some of the um, material for, for the organic matter that plants can produce and that plants can exude out of their roots in ways that Anne will explain in more detail. Uh, but what this means is that fungi, life in the soil, in a healthy, fertile, life-filled soil, uh, the life in the soil can actually serve as root extensions for plants that help them acquire things like mineral micronutrients that the plants may not have access to in the immediate vicinity of their roots. And what are those things like? Well, they're things like iron, things like zinc, things like selenium, elements that we don't need uh, a lot of to support our own health um, and that plants don't need a lot of, but that we need that little bit an awful lot. That's what they're called micronutrients. We need them in small amounts, but they, they serve disproportionately huge uh, uh, roles in both promoting the health and defense of plants and also in supporting our immune system and in supporting the health of, hum of people. And it turns out that life in the soil uh, are one of the key elements through which um, minerals get into our food. And the modern, the adoption of modern farming practices that have greatly, you know, changed the communities of life in the soil, that have disrupted the microbial miners and truckers that helped to get mineral elements into our food, um, have played a role in the historically documented declines of mineral uh, elements in food. For example, David Thomas back in, the, in 2003 wrote a paper that uh, was looking at how mineral elements had decreased in fruits and vegetables over the course since the Second World War, essentially, and he found that copper decreased by three quarters, calcium decreased by just under half, iron decreased by just over a quarter, magnesium decreased by about a quarter, and potassium decreased by 16, about an eighth or so. Um, in other words, there's across the board, there's been some fairly large decreases in minerals, particularly in things like micronutrients like copper. Uh, and the hypothesis usually put forward to that, explain that, is that as we started to breed crops to be very productive in very nitrogen-rich environments, um, very, yeah, overly fertilized fields in modern agriculture, um, that we selected for plants that, that in the those higher yields, the plants would be put making more biomass, and so the things like copper and iron that they took up through their roots from the soil would be spread through um, through a greater amount of, say, wheat kernels in the case of a wheat crop, and therefore in each bite of wheat you'd be getting, say, half as much or a quarter as much of the minerals that they we're looking at. So, but we think, Anne and I think, and I've hypothesized and document the science in, in the series of books, uh, that the degradation of soil organic matter and loss of soil life has contributed to the decline in mineral density in foods, in part because there are experiments that have shown that if you take, if you um, inoculate plants with particular microbes um, and that you can enhance the uptake of things like phosphorus or iron or zinc uh, and that if you conversely if you eliminate those or degrade those microbes and those, those connections particularly the fungal connections it turns out um, it can have a big impact on mineral uptake by plants 
This shows you data from some experiments uh, that were done in Japan where um, scientists took onion plants and they inoculated them with arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi um, and they had a control and they inoculated with two different kinds of fungi and look over here on the right uh, in the green stuff uh, the phosphorus uptake by plants at different levels of mycorrhizal colonization. So the control that had, was, had no mycorrhizal fungi was taking up about 25 picograms of phosphorus per plant. If you look at the inoculated ones, they were taking up you know, that were well inoculated, they're taking up almost 10 times as much phosphorus. Now phosphorus is something that we, that modern conventional ag agriculture tends to apply in great amounts to our fields, but mycorrhizal fungi provide an agent for actually getting it out of the soil particles and getting it into plants, suggesting that uh, there's alternative ways to fertilize crops that may not re require as much nitrogen as we add if we basically had the right life in the soil, the right bacterial and fungi, fungal communities to actually unlock the potential of those elements in the soil and get them get those elements into our foods. And so that's a little bit on the connections in terms of uh, soil life and what it can do to what's getting into our food. Growing a Revolution was the book that we wrote uh, after writing The Hidden Half of Nature, when we realized that it's sort of one thing to bring your soil back to life in an urban lot in Seattle, where you've got a lot of coffee shops around, and the Seattle Zoo's just down the street with a supply of, of well-composted herbivore manure they like to give away on an annual basis because they have got a lot of it they need to get rid of. Um, we always left asking the question of, well, could we bring soil back to life relatively fast on full-scale operational uh, farms that were productive and capable of, at a scale, capable of feeding the world. That led to writing Growing a Revolution, where I visited farmers around the world who had done to their farms what Anne had done to our lot. It's essentially the how-to story of how to basically move from an era of conventional agricultural chemistry that em or conventional agriculture that emphasizes chemistry into an era of regenerative agriculture that really emphasizes cultivating life in the soil to turn degraded lands back into verdant fields. How does this work? Well, the general principles of regenerative agriculture are ones that um, uh, I found in visiting farms in equatorial Africa, uh, Costa Rica, across North America, involved a combination of, of three, three key practices uh, plus a, a potential fourth. And those three practices that worked on farms, you know, subsistence farms up to really large uh, conventionally uh, mechanized farms in, in North America were to minimize the chemical and physical disturbance of the soil, which means not plowing, so going to no-till farming, but also going to minimal or no chemical use. Uh, so going to either organic no-till farming or going to uh, uh, no-till farming that used you know, a bare minimum of chemicals or to um, uh, organic farming that used no chemicals but used a bare minimum of tillage. Those kinds of combinations, trying to minimize the disturbance of the soil. And always keeping the soil covered. Uh, that means with a living with a living crop, a cover crop. So always keeping living roots growing in the ground uh, for reasons that will become very apparent in Anne's half of this talk. Uh, and also diversifying crop rotations. So minimizing disturbance, that's providing a stable home for soil life, keeping uh, cover crops growing, that helps to provide organic matter when those cover crops are, are knocked down and mulched into the soil. And maintaining a diverse crop rotations, that's about having a diverse community of life in the soil. Um, so that there's multiple positions that soil life can play to partner with crops in ways that Anne will talk more about. 
Um, and the fourth element of regenerative agriculture that uh, I view as an ex a potential accelerant for soil building is reintegrating animal husbandry into cropping operations so that their manure can actually help uh, stimulate both soil biology and to help build soil organic matter. Um, now, there's obviously there's there's good and bad ways to do that. Uh, if you overgraze the landscape, uh, integrating animals with farming can destroy the land. But there are regenerative methods and ways to do that that can help to build soil fertility and to help um, increase uh, the, the productivity of the land. Uh, now, the principles that are involved uh, are fairly generalizable. They translate to other settings, but the specific practices need to be tailored to the specific setting of the landscape. So the farmers I visited, say, in Costa Rica, were not the, using the same practices as farmers that um, I visited uh, in North America or in, in Central Africa. But the general principles, that minimal disturbance, the cover crops, and the diversity, and then the potential to accelerate with regenerative grazing practices, um, translated to settings around the world and actually paralleled what Anne was doing in our yard in terms of her regenerative gardening. What kind of results can it produce? Well, it can turn soil like this clay on the right into soil like the one on the left. These are both the Cardington clay soil. It's a soil from David Brandt's farm, uh, from his, his uh, family farm in Carroll, Ohio, uh, where they grow uh, wheat, corn, and soybeans for the North American commodity crop markets. Um, but they also grow diverse mixtures of cover crops. Um, they'll grow up to, I think they're up to like, you know, probably 15 or 20 different kinds of cover crops, even in a single mix in the field at present. So they always keep something growing. And this is the kind of soil David started with back in 1971. This happens to actually come from his neighbor's farm, which he just bought. For, um, recently for reasons that um, uh, will become apparent in a moment. Um, and this is the soil that David has built on his farm. He's turned that khaki clay into a rich chocolate cake that's permeated with holes full of life, very productive. He's been able to greatly reduce uh, and I think at this point pretty much eliminate his reliance on nitrogen fertilizers and and chemical fertilizers and pesticides um, in a way that has really helped his bottom line. So this is David here shown modeling one of his tillage radishes out in, a, in one of his fields by his neighbor's uh, yellow soybeans and he's got a mix of crops growing there in that field. Uh, but he is kind enough to walk me through the economics of his operation and his conventional neighbors, where his conventional neighbors are doing full tillage. They're plowing a lot. They're using 200 pounds of nitrogen per acre, two and a half quarts of Roundup. That's glyphosate per, per acre. And that's costing them 500 bucks an acre in sunk costs. And at the, the year that they um, um, that I visited his farm, they were uh, the, the, the uh, uh, county average uh, yield is about 100 bushels an acre at four bucks a bushel what they're getting that year that means his neighbors were losing 100 bucks for every acre of corn they planted the more they worked the more money they lost that is the key that's the achilles heel of modern conventional agriculture where the the input costs have gotten so high and the commodity prices have gotten so low that it's actually very difficult to turn a profit as a farmer what David Brad has done is he's gone no-till for 44 years. He then uh, started to integrate cover crops um, and a, a diversity of cover crops in his operation. And now he does no tillage. He only uses, the year I visited, a little bit of nitrogen, a little bit of Roundup. So he's not an organic farmer, 
I teased him that he was organic-ish because he was moving so close to being an organic farmer that it would be very simple for him to go that last mile. Um, what he was doing was costing him 320 bucks an acre. He harvested about 80% more than his conventional neighbors, and at that pace, he was making 400 bucks an acre when his neighbors were losing 100 bucks an acre. This is part of what turned me into an optimist to think that um, regenerative agricultural practices, the combinations of practices that he was using, could actually help could catch on among conventional farmers across North America and move them much closer to the world of organic agriculture. Um, these kind of practices also worked in on subsistence farms in Africa. Uh, this gentleman here is Kofi Boa. He runs the No-Till Center for uh, No-Till Center in Kumasi, Ghana. He's been teaching uh, villagers in his region to how to move from their uh, traditional slash and burn or Sweden style of agriculture to using a no-till method with cover crops. Um, they have small farms that are worked by hand, but what this has done is it allowed them to basically shut off erosion. When you basically slash and burn, it actually is fairly erosive after the burning. Um, and so notice what happened to the amount of um, uh, soil erosion on the fields in this area. They went from 1,800 kilograms per hectare per year, which is kind of an abstract number, I realize. But just notice it dropped from 1,700 down to 77. It almost shut off erosion. What happened to their crop yields? Their traditional yields of a ton and a half per hectare of corn increased to four and a half tons. They tripled. And their the yields of cow peas basically doubled. Doubling and tripling of crop yields is better than the Green Revolution did. Uh, and this was done um, on fields uh, using no agrochemicals, using no, um, um, no tillage, no agrochemicals. It was, it was a way of thinking about the soil and rebuilding soil health through the adoption of those principles of minimal disturbance, cover crops, and diversity. These folks got diversity into their fields by growing eight or so different crops in the same field at the same time with a polyculture, you know, low crop, ground hugging crops and tree crops. Um, but the point is, is that they revolutionized their agriculture and re rebuilt and revolutionized their soil. This next soil that I'll show you is from uh, the Singing Frogs Farm, the, the Paul and Elizabeth Kaiser's farm in Sebastopol, California. Uh, and the soil on the left is from a neighboring, uh, a neighboring field, or literally across the fence from their farm. Uh, and it's what they started with in terms of, of, of soil quality. They then uh, spent about 10 years at this point um, rebuilding soil health through a no organic, essentially an organic no-till vegetable farm. They're not certified organic, but they're not using any chemicals. And notice the difference in the soil. It started off the same just 10 years ago. The pace of soil building is remarkable in this case. And they're not alone. One more example. This is Gabe Brown's farm in Bismarck, North Dakota. Um, in his right hand, he's holding up the soil from his market garden where he applied those regenerative agricultural principles. The soil in his left hand is his neighbor's soil. You'll notice the color difference. Again, that's carbon. It's basically carbon taken out of the atmosphere through photosynthesis and put into the ground through agricultural practices. Um, it's a way to actually help mitigate the greenhouse gases that are, are causing climate trouble. Um, and the potential for that is actually huge globally. What happened at Brown's Ranch is that he started off with three inches of topsoil back in the early 1990s when he, was, uh, when he first went to no-till. He had about 2% organic matter. He then diversified his cash crops, diversified his integrated cover crops in the late 90s, went to multi-species cover crops in the late 2000s, it reintegrated livestock in 2010. Um, by just a few years ago, he turned that three inches of topsoil into 14 inches, more than tripled it. And his organic matter was up to 6%. He more than tripled it. Those are huge changes and in a time frame that is geologically instantaneous. 
to be able to completely restore the fertility of your land so that it is basically functionally equivalent to a native prairie and do it in less than 20 years is remarkable. And yet he's done it and other people have done it as well. And they've done it profitably, which is what makes me an optimist on this, uh, um, uh, on this issue. This is a slide from a paper by Claire Lacan and Jonathan Lundgren that was published back in 2018, the year after uh, Growing, Re Growing Revolution came out. And what they did is they compared the economics of regenerative and conventional farms on, um, on, in, the, in the Corn Belt across the um, American Midwest. And what this shows you is the revenue and cost per hectare on their, on the, for the averages across those farms. So the way you read the graph is the bar at the top, that's how much they harvested, that's what they got for their harvest per hectare. They spent all the colored stuff on corn seeds and crop insurance and herbicides and fertilizers and so on. And the profit is the bar on the bottom left over. The regenerative farms are shown on the right. You'll notice that they harvested more, they got a better income off their fields because their yields went up once they restored fertility to their land, uh, and they spent less doing it. These Again, these were not organic farmers, they were conventional farmers, but they were weaning themselves off of conventional inputs, and they were left with a much healthier profit in the end. That's what really started turning me into an optimist on this issue of what could... Um, of whether or not regenerative practices could be adopted. Uh, also, uh, another benefit of re rebuilding the health and fertility of soils is that healthy soils have a higher water holding capacity. Uh, for every 1% increase in organic matter, the, you can hold up to 20,000 gallons of water per acre, water that will sink into the ground to be available for growing crops. Photosynthesis only works if you have sunlight and water. So uh, um, water is the big vulnerably, vulnerability for agriculture in many regions, and healthy soils have a better ability to not only absorb that water, but to hold on to it and make it available to crops. So there's lots of benefits of farming with healthy fertile soils. There's, uh, I put at the top of the list, higher farmer profits. Comparable yields after conversion are a big part of the, the reason for that. The other half of it is that farmers can use less fertilizer, pesticide, and fossil fuel uh, while harvesting those, those comparable or greater harvests. And that is a recipe for a healthier profit. But it also means that there's more carbon in the soil, and that's carbon taken out of the atmosphere and put into the ground, taken from a place where it's a problem to put it in a place where it's a net benefit, not only to the farmer, but also to, um, to the health of the land and ultimately, as we'll see, to the nutritional content of the foods that we harvest off these lands. Um, and it also means that um, there's less off-site um, uh, pollution if we're using less soluble nitrogen and phosphorus as fertilizers, then less of it's getting into rivers, streams, groundwater, the Gulf of Mexico, all the places that the overuse of, of fertilizers have contributed to environmental degradation. Now, the one thing I haven't shared with you yet is, well, what does this mean for actually the nutrient density of our foods that were grown, these, these regenerative soil um, building practices? So Ann and I and Ray Archuleta, Paul Brown, and Jasmine Jordan did a brief study uh, when we were writing What Your Food Ate to look at the effects of what do those, these regenerative farming practices mean for the health of the land and also what's in our food. So we took 10 paired adjacent farms, uh, both a conventional one and a regenerative one, across the U.S. shown here on this map, so from California all the way over to Connecticut. Uh, we just tried to find uh, farms where the, the farmers had been doing regenerative agriculture for between, fi between 5 and 10 years, involving all three of the practices, the minimal disturbance, the cover crops, and the diversity. And then we sampled their soils, and we had them grow the same crops, across, you know, literally across the fence line, uh, and then compare the nutrient density of those crops. So what do we find in the soils? That's the, the first, these two bar, the box and whiskers plots down here in the lower left-hand corner of the screen. 
Uh, the percent soil organic matter on the regenerative farms was about, on average, twice what it was in the conventional farms. In other words, it had basically, they'd within a couple decades, well, actually within about a decade or so, although some of them have been doing no-till for, for longer, uh, you know, within a short period of time, they had restored their soil to comparable to what the native soil was, reversed that 50% loss of soil organic matter that I told you was so common on agricultural lands around the world earlier. So they'd reverse that in their topsoil, uh, and their soil health scores had tripled. So the amount of life in the soil and its activity had really gone up. So they had life-filled, fertile soils um, that had been restored. What did this do to what's in their foods? Uh, well, it increased the phytochemical content by 15 to 20%. What are phytochemicals? Phyto is plant, chemicals a chemical, plant-made chemicals. Things like carotenoids and carrots, the stuff that make them orange. It's a good UV protector. Phenolics, phytosterols, things that are antioxidants, anti-inflammatory when they get into our bodies and that serve other purposes in plants that Anne will talk about. Mineral micronutrients were up 15 to 30 percent for certain ones um, and the soil health scores as I mentioned had gone up you know um, factors of 30 percent about two and a half times depending on which which paired farm we we're looking at. So in other words there's evidence that these regenerative farming practices are not only good for the land but they're also enhance the nutritional quality of the foods that we harvest off the land. So finally, in the last couple minutes that I have, I'm going to basically share sort of my vision of where we are, I think, in the world of agriculture. Um, we've gone through a series of four agricultural revolutions. We're poised now for a fifth one, um, and that is the first revolution was the idea of cultivation and tillage in the first place. This is the Greek goddess of cereal series, um, uh, just for illustration. But, you know, Agriculture itself was a radical idea and a revolution in, in human lifestyles. The second agricultural revolution was when we started thinking about soil husbandry, adding legumes to crop rotations. The, uh, the idea of cover crops and crop rotations are not new ideas. These are very old and traditional ideas that were brought in, I would argue, in the second agricultural revolution where people started doing things to maintain the fertility of the land, um, but that didn't always sustain it because of the over-reliance on tillage. And that's where we have an opportunity today to combine no-till practices with the ancient wisdom of things like cover crops and, and crop rotations. And it's just my favorite quote from Leonardo da Vinci about we know more about the movement of celestial bodies than about the soil underfoot. How many things in science can you say that about that from five, a quote from 500 years ago is as true today as it was then? Many of the connections that we write about in What's Your Food Ate, that Anne will be getting to in a moment, um, was, or are basically you know, discoveries in the last couple decades that have revolutionized our way of looking at agriculture. But the third agricultural revolution uh, was what happened in the 19th and early 20th centuries in terms of mechanization and industrialization. No big mysteries there. I like to think of the fourth agricultural revolution as the green revolution and biotechnology rolled into one. I'll, I'll, I won't editorialize about... Um, about either of those, but let me basically say instead that I think we are at we are poised for what I hope will be a fifth agricultural revolution, uh, and that is one that's focused on building soil health, on the kind of regenerative farming practices that uh, we've been writing about and talking about so far in this talk that can rebuild the health and fertility of land as a consequence of intensive farming, and thereby not only improve the environment but but pull off the daunting challenge of feeding the world going forward, um, but also, as Anne will be emphasizing, uh, the way that that can actually help better nourish the world. So now's the time where I need to fade into the background, and I'm going to briefly obscure the screen here, and I'll invite Anne, and she will basically take over for me for the second half of this. So 
thank you for your attention, and I'll turn it over to her. You might have to put this to that side. Thank you. All right. <clears throat> Hello, everybody. I am Anne, and I'm going to carry it forward from here. So I think in many ways, what your food ate is really a culmination of everything that David and I had learned and researched and wrote about in the other books. And you might have thought that we would have started with this book, but in fact, we didn't know what we didn't know uh, until after finishing the other ones. And there really are some pretty profound implications and consequences when it comes to what our food ate. And so this is gonna be the part of the talk where I, I really sort of unpack some of these things. There's far more material in the book, and so I'm really just gonna sort of touch on the highlights, but I think it will be enough to whet your appetite and you'll see what it is uh, that's really at stake here. And it turns out, when you think about it, agriculture and medicine are two of humanity's greatest endeavors, our greatest endeavors. Agriculture starting some 10,000 years ago, and uh, we've always been trying to, you know, doctor ourselves, help our friends, families, and communities through the practice of medicine. And diet has a lot to do with how we're practicing agriculture and medicine. And the lens I'm gonna talk about uh, for what your food ate, agriculture and medicine, it has to do with the relatively new area of human biology and science that's focused on human health. And it's about microbiome. So quite simply, microbiomes are, are groups of microbes that are in and on their host organism. And we know that many of these microbes, individuals in these communities and whole communities, they dovetail with the cells and genes of their host organism. That could be a person, that could be a plant, a fish, and so on. And really what we're learning about microbiomes is they, they play sort of dual roles. They help their host organism acquire and process things from the soil if they're a plant, things from the human diet if they are in a human being. But they also can actually create beneficial compounds and turn nutrients into beneficial compounds. This turns out to be part of the pathway and route by which the human microbiome and actually the microbiome of farm animals how they keep their hosts healthy. And when it comes to the microbiome players, they're, they're up here on this slide, and it's really hard for us to wrap our, our minds around a microbiome, in part because these are some of the tiniest creatures on Earth. Uh, most of them consist of a single cell. You need a microscope, really, to see them. And I'm sure you're all familiar with some of these. Bacteria, of course, viruses. We now know uh, far more about their influence on our lives due to COVID. 
but even fungi are uh, a microbiome uh, member. Archaea and protists these are other kinds of, of microbes. So they all associate in communities, often in, in ways where the, the waste product or byproduct of the metabolic process of one of these organisms becomes a feedstock for another. And this is what keeps them together as a community in many cases. And everything has a microbiome. Uh, don't fret, I'm going to walk you through this slide. What you'll see here is that uh, what I wanted to, to talk about is the way in which these different colors around uh, that are signifying the microbiome membership. Just take a look at this color here and how much more there is in the upper end of the digestive tract uh, of a cow than in its lower end in the colon. And this particular color relates to this large, very large group of bacteria. And what we know about the diversity of microbiomes is that it relates to function, <clears throat> what it is they're doing in their host organism. Okay, I'm gonna skip down here to a couple of plants. And you'll see this orange area is pretty different in rice and soybeans and corn. So the same kind of idea here. Basically, you want a diverse microbiome, generally speaking, uh, especially when these microbes are doing beneficial things because it translates directly to function. And we want normal function with a microbiome, whatever its host organism is. And that brings me, of course, to plants. Plants, whether they are our domesticated plants or those that are in wild plant communities. Things work very, very similar when it comes to the plant microbiome in those two major groups of plants. And the heart of the plant microbiome is in a wild and alive place beneath our feet that is called the rhizosphere. And what drives much of this activity in the rhizosphere is compounds called exudates. If we were able to go down there in the soil and probe and peer and investigate what is happening at the tip of each and every root hair, it might look something like this. So exudates are in liquid form and the plant is making them and then pushing these exudates out into the soil through the very tips of their root hairs. And here's an illustration of what that might look like. We're gonna blow up that area at the end of a uh, root hair. Exudates are flowing out of that. Dave talked a little bit about the fetching fungi. They're consuming these exudates. Fungi, of course, they can't photosynthesize. Plants can. Plants are using all of, these, all of this energy that they get from photosynthesis to make compounds. Fungi are consuming them. Bacteria are consuming these exudates as well. And what bacteria can do is they can they can turn these exudates uh, directly or indirectly into a vast array of compounds that the plant then takes back up. Some of these compounds are things like uh, plant growth promoting hormones. So here in a sense, the botanical world has farmed out a bit 
of its growth strategy to microbes in the soil. That's pretty interesting. And uh, a lot of what uh, fungi or bacteria might bring back to a plant, it could be hormones, it could be nutrients, but it also can be information and intelligence about what is happening in the larger world around a plant in the soil. Maybe pathogens are approaching. Uh, perhaps there's a, a nutrient source or a water source that the microbiome might be communicating with its plant host about. Now, what we what we really want to be happening here is that this microbiome is intact and that it's functioning and that there's a robust conversation between plant and microbiome. And this begins to uh, explain why farming practices are so important to plant health and well-being as well as that of the microbiome. Remember I mentioned some of the tiniest creatures on earth. You really want to minimize disrupting the soil, disrupting it with tillage or disrupting it with chemicals. Now, Dave showed you those fetching fungi. I want to show you what it looks like inside of a plant cell where you have some of these fetching fungi. These cauliflower-shaped uh, things here in this slide. This is a part of the mycorrhizal fungi. These are the fetchers and how they are pulling in exudates to power their activities and how at the same time they're delivering what it is they've fetched from the soil at large and they're trading it with their plant host. Now, I don't think you even need to be a biologist to realize that this is uh, not only highly effective, it might even seem a bit odd that microbes are living inside of plant cells. But if you're a plant, you're stuck in place, you've got to do something. And what the entire botanical world has done is they've developed these symbiotic relationships. So symbioses are, are generally mutually beneficial relationships. And this works great if you're a plant stuck in place. This is what's helping you survive. It's also what is helping you from being, you know, a sitting duck out there on the landscape. And, and uh, you need all of this happening because it's also a part, as I'll get into later, uh, of your defensive strategy. All right, now, how important is all of this, this exudate production and the microbiome pulling in these exudates and trading with their plant host? It's pretty important. A plant will take up to 30 to 40% of all of this energy that it's making through photosynthesis. And this is what's driving their microbiome in the soil, in the rhizosphere. It's, it, it's biology is mercilessly efficient when it comes to making and trading energy. It's, it, it's not like us where we're just sort of flagrantly um, using energy, whether it's fossil fuel energy or coming out of hydropower. We're not nearly as efficient as the, as the natural world when it comes to how we use this and what we get out of this. So this is a really big deal, something to keep in mind. And it underscores the importance of these symbiotic relationships, the exudates, 
and what the microbes are giving back to their plant host. Now, exudates are just one form of organic matter in the soil. There's other forms like microbial necromass. Now, what, what is that? Okay, here, it's really simple, dead microbes. All of those microbial communities, they have a pretty rapid turnover rate from generation to generation, but they're like little fertilizer packets in a sense. And when microbes die, they sit there in the soil and they happen to be uh, quite rich in nitrogen. And this is a key thing that plants need to grow. So these researchers took a look at how much of the organic matter in soil comes from dead microbes. And in their research in uh, forest soils and in grasslands, it was pretty significant. About a third in forest soils and, and almost two thirds in grasslands, the organic matter, they were able to trace back to dead microbes. So this is why it's really important that we have a living soil and, and why it's really important that our farming practices are not unduly disrupting all of this nutrient cycling that is happening. Now, there's another form of organic matter. Now, I, I'm a big, a big gardener, a person who thinks about plants a lot. And these were some forms of organic matter that I was kind of scavenging and collecting uh, from nearby places in my neighborhood. And what did I do with all these piles of stuff? Well, um, I would put them together into different kinds of mulch mixes, wheelbarrows and wheelbarrows, probably <clears throat> over the course of a decade or so, I never kept count, hundreds at least, hundreds of wheelbarrow full, fulls of organic matter mixed together in my mulches. I would layer it out onto the beds because this was feeding soil life. You might think of mulches, uh, whether in a garden context or a farm context, they're a bit like a drip irrigation system, only water isn't coming out of this drip irrigation, it's nutrients. Everything that is contained in this organic matter is gradually getting broken down, first by, by very large um, life forms in the soil, an earthworm, beetles, things we can see, and it cycles through smaller and smaller forms of soil life, and eventually it gets to the microbes. So my point here is just between exudates and all of these different kinds of organic matter to remind you that this is a diet for soil and for soil life and it ripples through to the bodies of crops on farmlands and of course plants in garden settings. And this is all really a form of plant intelligence. We often think, oh, plants, the brain, it must be above ground, just like us. The brain is on top of the body, but the botanical world does not work like us. Most of their brain, when you really think about it and you see what they're doing and how important their microbiomes are, how important uh, organic matter and farming practices are, this is where plant intelligence resides. And my friends, that means this. This is where the brain is. And so what do we do to get to the brain? We need to think about soil as the greatest gut on earth. And we've got to use the gut 
to get to the plant brain because brain food matters a lot. All right, we're not, I'm sorry we're not here in person with you, or maybe you're glad now that I tell you I'm gonna throw a little quiz at you, okay? These are tomato roots, and they've had three different treatments. One is absolutely nothing has been done. One is composted manure, and one is a standard synthetic fertilizer treatment, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. And so you look at this a bit, you ponder it, which one do you think is which? All right, here's the answer. Brain food matters a lot, and here's why. Uh, starting at the far left. This isn't half bad, folks. If you've got a pretty decent soil and you haven't robbed all of the soil organic matter out of it, these plants are still working along with their microbiome on accessing the nutrients in that soil, in that organic matter. So I think that's a pretty decent uh, root architecture. I can envision exudates coming out of those roots, feeding the microbiome. Like I said, it's not half bad. All right, the middle image here, conventional. I don't really like that. That tells me that root system is not all that it can be. It's, it's really uh, sort of under potential. And the reason for this in part is that these conventional fertilizers are immediately, uh, a plant can take them up immediately. And they kind of bypass the plant's microbiome. So conventional fertilizers, the basic problem with them is that they leave the plant microbiome, all those fetching fungi, fetching fungi all these um, bacteria, that are consuming exudates and turning them into other things, they're left high and dry on a fertilizer diet. A, a plant can grow on fertilizers. There's no doubt of that. That's, how, that's what modern agriculture is all about. But when the plant microbiome down there in the soil <clears throat> isn't fed, that means that the plant is not getting all of these other things that their microbiome makes. And that could be, like I'd mentioned, plant growth promoting hormones. That means information about pathogens. There's a whole array of nutrients and compounds that the plant isn't getting. And that actually makes plants more vulnerable to maladies and diseases. And that means that modern agriculture then has to compensate for a paltry plant microbiome with synthetic chemicals, many of which are toxic. So these are pesticides and our herbicides and so on. And this is just further chiseling away at soil health. All right, on to the third image here. I love this. Look at, look at the effects of composted manure. It's providing a really nice level of organic matter in forms that are accessible to large forms of soil life all the way down to the microbes. This is feeding the plant. You get a really nice cycling between the exudates of plants, between the soil organic matter, and it really becomes a, a virtuous loop. And it, it makes sense. The plant is well-fed. The microbiome is well-fed. This is what we like. All right. So what David and I realized in thinking about what our plant and animal foods eat, that the soil has a diet of itself, and that soil diet ripples on up directly, of course, into plants. Uh, 
I'll, I'll draw your attention to the two biggest arrows on this slide. So what we get with a fertilizer diet is actually sort of an excess in, in too many cases of these synthetic um, forms of nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. Makes plants grow, but I explained the problem is that it also means down here, not really ideal amounts of these microbial metabolites. Soil health diet, we like this. And here's why. Look at the size of this arrow. We're getting an abundance of these beneficial microbial metabolites. We're getting fetching fungi are, are up on their game, bacteria are up on their game, plant is benefiting. Now, we can also get a, a perfectly adequate amount of NP and K out of the organic matter that microbes are helping to cycle. This was the whole story that Dave talked about in the uh, Kofi Boa story about uh, in Ghana. And so you can get NPK, those triple, the, the doubling and the tripling of the yields, that wasn't due to synthetic fertilizers. That was due to the soil health diet. Okay, now, so here's your upshot. This is really a health and nutrition plan for soil and crops fully functioning plant microbiome. And we often, too often, I, I would say in my opinion, we think we need super health or super immunity or super diet. Actually, folks, we just need normal. Normal is fine. What is happening in too many cases in agricultural settings, garden settings, and as I'll get into with the human diet, we're getting abnormal. We just need to transition back to normal. I think it's a bit over the top to be talking about super and extra and ultra because normal is what we've always had and we've just been veering away from that. And I'm gonna transition now to the animal part of what your food ate because as surely as the soil, what we feed our animals has profound implications on their health and well-being. And so, what uh, what we write about, what we realized in writing what your food ate is whether soil health, crop health, animal health, or human health, we have what we call the Fab Four. And these particular things up here on the slide turn out to be really important for our health. And these are also things that farming practices can profoundly influence. Dave covered micronutrients, uh, and I'm going to cover in these next set of slides the phytochemicals, fat balance, and microbial metabolites. And I'll have to say that when it comes to probably the most iconic kind of farm animal, uh, which is a ruminant, shown here, ruminants include cows, sheep, and goats. And in looking at their inherent and innate biology, it seemed to me that sometimes it was a question of, what is this organism? Is it animal, is it vegetable, or is it miracle? And the reason for that is that it has to do with this place in the ruminant digestive tract. So the rumen is this big barrel or keg-shaped 
part of the ruminant digestive tract, it is the first area that anything a ruminant eats, it lands in the rumen. And I know that we've probably all heard about cows having four stomachs. That's really not very accurate. Um, and stomachs are sort of dissolvers of things. The rumen is really an ecosystem. And just as the rhizosphere is sort of the heart of the crop microbiome, the rumen is the heart of the microbiome, certainly for cattle, sheep, and goats. It's, in fact, it's another biological bazaar. And it's hard for us humans to wrap our minds around the rumen. Uh, this, I like this illustration because it kind of gets at that. We can see the rumen is a three-dimensional thing. Okay, just get that in your mind. And then I want you to envision that food, all of these plants, and we hope living plants, which I'll get into in a moment, we hope living plants are coming into this rumen because the cow microbiome gets a hold of these plants have been all chewed up and mixed with saliva and they start to ferment all of these plant foods. And these fermentation processes, you can have it, you know, something at the beginning of the fermentation process, uh, that's a little bit what this, this fiber mat is about uh, in the upper half of this illustration, all more down to this liquid zone in the bottom. So these are just sort of different levels of fermentation. Uh, there's a lot of feedback between the rumen and the ruminant brain. If something's not chewed up enough, this is what all of this rumination is about. It moves out of the rumen back into the cow's mouth. I'm not kidding you. And it gets rechewed because it's not processed enough. Comes back into the rumen and the microbiome says, aha, we like this. Now we can really proceed with the rest of the fermentation process. So in many ways, ruminant animals are like four-legged living composters. All right, we've probably all had a compost uh, pile in our uh, garden, maybe on our farm. And what is really different about the ruminant and our compost piles is that there's feedbacks constantly all of the time between the animal and this particular kind of composting system. It's really dynamic. It's really hard to study because feedstocks are different all the time. You have these different levels of fermented plants. Rumen is, rumen is communicating with the animal's brain. So this is, this is really complex, really intricate, and really important for animal health. And one of the things that makes it so important for animal health is phytochemicals. Not these ones in particular. I just put these up here because I'm figuring you're all a little more familiar with phytochemicals that are um, sort of more a little bit in the human world. So linalool, that's something that's found in lavender. Sulforaphane, that's something that's found in like broccoli, kale, curcumin down here in the bottom of the slide. That's one of the uh, key types of phytochemicals in the uh, spice that we know as turmeric. So phytochemicals, there are thousands of them, maybe even tens of thousands. And they serve, this is part of the plant lifestyle. These phytochemicals help plants live out 
and thrive in their stuck in place lifestyle. It's what protects them from these harsh UVA, ultraviolet and UVB sun rays. It acts like a sunscreen for them. It's also phytochemicals are a big, big part of plant defense. It's okay if an insect herbivore nibbles on a little bit of a leaf. We don't want the insect herbivore taking down a whole garden or a whole crop. Phytochemicals push back on herbivores. And more recently, scientists have been learning about the way that plants use phytochemicals to communicate among themselves from plant to plant, say tree to tree in a forest. Uh, and they're also communicating about pathogens, about nutrient sources, all of these things. So phytochemicals are really like the pharmacy that a plant taps into. And they are also important for you know, herbivores lifestyle. That's all these animals eat. Ruminants are highly specialized herbivores because of the rumen. And they are also, in fact, plant-based food, right? That's the herbivore lifestyle. And what we know about that specialized herbivore lifestyle is this. They'll, an herbivore, a ruminant will put together its meal anywhere from three to five different plant species. But it sort of zeroes in on exactly which three to five by taking in over the course of a day, little nibbles, little samples of somewhere between 50 to 75 other plant species. So just as I had talked about the brain of the plant being in the rhizosphere, you might say that the brain of a ruminant is really here in the rumen. And you want that rumen supplied with as much as much intelligence as possible because it makes for uh, ruminants that are healthy, content, really living out the kind of lifestyle that fits their innate biology. And tannins here shown on this slide, tannins are a type of phytochemical most of the plants, if not all, that ruminants eat have some type of tannin in them. And what is known about tannins are some of these benefits. Uh, picture bacterial pathogens. Oh, tannins can knock those back if animals are eating enough of them. Oh, apoptotic, what this means, this is apoptosis is how the body gets rid of abnormal cells that are on their way to cancer or already cancerous. We want those cells to die off and we want them out of the body. Tannins can influence that in a positive way. Uh, another, another thing that tannins can do in the diet, um, eating and metabolizing food can be kind of hard on our cells and tissues. It creates a sort of exhaust, if you will, and we wanna clean all of that exhaust out of the body. And so tannins in adequate levels in the ruminant diet do the same thing for ruminants. Keeping those cells and, cells and tissues kind of cleaned out of the exhaust so they can function, not super, not extra, just normal, 
Normal is fine, folks. So how are we going to get phytochemicals into the animal foods that become a part of the human diet? Well, living plants. This is what this whole grass-fed term is all about. It's a bit of a misnomer. We're not just talking about grasses, right? What we want is we want animals to have access, you know, in about three to five plants for any given meal, about 50 to 75 that they can sample. The rumen can interact with all of those phytochemicals, feedback between the brain and the rumen that determines the behavior of the animal about which plants to select. All right. So this is what this study found out. They looked at, researchers found out, they looked at across 22 studies, primarily at these major groups of phytochemicals, the carotenoids, tocopherols, polyphenols, terps, terpenoids. And were these animals on a pasture diet or on a concentrate diet? So a concentrate diet, we can just pretty much say that's what animals that live in a feedlot are eating. They're not exactly uh, deciding what to eat. It's the human being who's decided what the animal is going to eat. And these concentrate diets uh, are, are I'll get into it a little bit. They're just not good for the animal. They uh, foul up the microbes that live in the rumen. And one thing we know about microbiomes is when they don't get their preferred diet, they are still churning out metabolites. Many of these metabolites, however, are, are bad for their host organism. And this is sort of chiefly um, the problem with feeding animals in feedlots. Out on diverse pastures, though, this is what the study found. Wow, phytochemical levels twice to 20 times higher in the meat and dairy of these types of, on this type of a diet than animals that uh, are in a feedlot. So if you're not the words kind of person, here's a picture of what I am talking about and what these researchers found out. So grain fed kind of a diet, we do not want that. That does not imbue the ruminant body with much in the way of phytochemical diversity or richness. You really want what it says right here, plant species diverse diet. Introduces a lot more phytochemicals in the animal's diet that, that makes for a better lifestyle for them, and it puts more phytochemicals in the animal foods in our diet. And so really, you can, I can kind of sum it up this way for you. The rumen is really the metabolic terrain for the microbiome, and that means that what the microbiome is producing is driving the health and well-being of the animal. All right, on to fats. So this term, fat of the land, we've probably all bumped into it, but here's where that term sort of originated from, at least in the scientific sense. We call living leafy parts of a plant the fat of the land because omega-3 fats, you probably heard of those, are often associated with cold water fish like salmon, but they are in plants too. And the reason they're in plants is they are fundamental to photosynthesis. Low levels of omega-3s or no omega-3s in a plant is not able to photosynthesize. So, for example, low, 
you, you wouldn't find much in the way of omega-3s in, say, a root or a woody part of a plant because that part isn't photosynthesizing. They're really concentrated, our omega-3 fats, in living and leafy, all right? And, oh, here's what that kind of a lifestyle looks like. Ruminants that are out in pasture eating the leafy and the living are taking in an abundance of omega-3 rich fats. So it's not just sort of a, a, a dietary thing, it's a whole lifestyle thing when it comes to ruminants and omega-3 fats. So you can contrast that um, with what we call an omega-6 rich diet. Now, a seed is a different part of the plant than a leaf. Seeds are a really have a really different purpose in the plant world. You want that seed to hit the ground, you want it to ruminate, you want it to germinate and grow. And so omega-6 fats are rich in seeds for that reason. Those kind of fats are part of the germination, part of the energy storage that goes into plants germinating and getting off to a good start. And what we know about um, you know, modern animal agriculture is the diet is, is rich in omega-6s. We're feeding them a ton of grains. Um, this messes up the, the, the rumen, throws the pH off in the rumen, and that leads to all kinds of metabolic problems for our ruminants. And, and so let's leave that picture aside and let's talk about the positive things that we do want to do when we're raising animals that end up in the human diet. It really goes like this. We want the living and the leafy because it's not only the beneficial fat balance, but it's fiber. This is what the microbes in the rumen are consuming. They want fermentable fiber. And, and so that's the lifestyle of the microbiome. And it also comes down to this, phytochemical richness and variety for the animal and for their microbiome. So again, what does that look like? It looks like this. In essence, fats, phytochemicals, and fiber, this is the health plan for ruminants. This is how we stop over-medicating animals in agriculture with the slew of pharmaceuticals that end up in soil, in the meat, and in the dairy, and so on. The health plan for ruminants was and always has been their diet. And so in many ways, it's not the cow, it's the how. It's how the human beings are working with or against the innate biology of ruminants. And what we know about ruminants, it's not just our domesticated animals. It's, it's things like moose, it's deer, it's all of these grazing animals that have been in uh, co-evolved with the greatest grasslands on our planet. This is grasslands in the Midwest. This is places like the Serengeti. This is the great grasslands in, um, in Ukraine and Russia. The health plan for ruminants has always been grazing on diverse phytochemically laden plants that are living because that are living and so therefore rich in omega-3s. 
I put this up here because <clears throat> Louis Pasteur, the great French chemist and microbiologist, uh, several hundred years ago. So, so Louis Pasteur is the one who he, with the great German microbiologist Robert Koch, gave us germ theory. That these were the folks that figured out, oh, the microbial world can also be the vehicle for disease. Sort of. One germ, this disease. A different germ, a different disease. So Pasteur was very focused on pathogens and thought it's only pathogens that matter. But in fact, he is said to have said this on his deathbed. He began to realize that the setting, the environment, the context in which pathogens are living influences whether or not they really get a foothold into a plant an animal or a person. So the pathogen is nothing and the terrain is everything. This is where diet intersects with microbiomes, with the rumen, and as I'll get into, our very own bodies. And so phytochemicals and fats that the animal takes in, they ripple into foods in the human diet, and that becomes a factor in our own health. And what I want to do now is just set set the stage before I I, I kind of fold out and 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 uh, loop back to this fat thing. So it has to do with this, with the kinds of diseases and maladies that have been affecting human populations in more recent times. This graph on the left is just showing various infectious diseases: rheumatic fever, measles, and the biggest thing lately, of course, has been COVID. AIDS could also be um, on this slide for that matter. Uh, AIDS and COVID are a bit of exceptions, but we have definitely pushed back on many of the most dread infectious diseases that have taken down, you know, the, the generations of, say, our, our grandparents and great-grandparents. Contrast that with the graph on the right, in the same time frame, so this is just sort of right after World War II and uh, on forward into the, the 1980s and forward, infectious diseases had definitely been declining, but these other types of diseases, these are, these are the so-called chronic diseases, they're really increasing. And one thing we know about many chronic diseases is they tend to be some kind of disordered immune response. And remember I had I've mentioned this word that we really need just normal. In other words, these chronic diseases are some of these abnormal, abnormal functioning and, and abnormal things that our um, immune system is doing. So many people have wondered, well, why? Where is all this abnormal, abnormal functioning coming from? And it's not just a few of us that are having an abnormal sort of response to uh, many things. It, it's seven of ten of us have one or more chronic diseases that are linked to our diet, and that diet is linked to some kind of disordered um, immune response. And that, I'm going to loop back to fats for this next section. So uh, on the left here, these are just these different populations that you can see, starting at the Paleolithic and, and heading on down to current Indian <clears throat> populations. and the ratio of omega-6 omega to omega-3 fats in the diets. And this ratio, as you can see, okay, back in the Paleolithic period, that ratio just under one, 
Greece prior to 1960 shown here. We've got about, you know, one omega-6 fat to about two omega-3s. Oh, the U.S. today, wow, about almost 17, the ratio of omega-6, omega-3, about 17 to 1. In other words, we're taking in a lot more omega-6s than omega-3s in the sort of standard American diet. And that's not ideal. What we really want is roughly about the same amount of omega-6s as uh, omega-3s in the human diet, whether we're getting these through our plant foods or our animal foods, just roughly about the same. That's why when we talk about the Fab Four, we don't just say fats, we say fat balance. And balance means, right, about the same. You know, veer, vary a little bit, but about the same. And why this balance is so important, it has to do with inflammation. Inflammation is our body's go-to normal process of the immune system. These days, inflammation gets a bad rap because it is uh, going on too much and too long in the human body. But in fact, when it's operating normally, it's just what we want. Because say you have cancer or early onset of cancer, inflammation is what takes out cancerous cells and abnormal cells. And that's, that's perfect, that's what we want. Get them out of the body. Say you fall down, you've got a wound, you want that wound to heal, inflammation is a part of that process, a part of rebuilding the cells and the tissues so they can get up and running again. This is the beneficial side of inflammation. And so what immunologists have uh, sort of deduced through time is that certain fats, they start inflammation, like there's a lot of challenges out there and we, we want inflammation to start. Here it is, boom, boom, we've got a wound, uh-oh, onset of cancer, yeah, 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 yeah. Inflammation, it goes up. We're gonna get solve those problems and then inflammation is gonna come down. So omega-6s, it turns out, start this process. And if omega-6s, our bodies are filled with them, uh, what you, can happen is that inflammation goes on and on and on. But what if the problem's taken care of? Then you've got inflammation that is actually, it becomes damaging to our cells and tissues. Inflammation is a pretty heavy duty process, right? It's killing cancer cells, it's healing wounds. And so when, it, and when, when you've got that problem solved, you want inflammation to come right on back down. It's what we call the resolution phase. It's not really about an anti-inflammatory, it's about resolving inflammation. It's like just the way you turn a garden hose on to water something, you don't just walk away and leave that hose running, right? You go over to the, the handle and you turn it off. And so omega-3s, this is how they, this is what their role is in inflammation. So you wanna have enough omega-3s stored away there in your cell membranes so that your immune cells can access it and use it. These omega-3s are the building blocks for compounds that do all the signaling and communication to end inflammation. Those cytokine storms, you know, that we heard about during COVID, that was runaway inflammation. 
I've always had this question, was giving infusions of omega-3s, was that ever thought of as a therapy for resolving inflammation? I think it's something that, that we should all be, not, not infusions of omega-3s, but given that the pandemic's gone on for years, we're probably looking at more of it, maybe we ought to consider getting more omega-3s into the human diet, right? And if, if we're choosing to eat animal foods, this is the importance of leafy living plants with phytochemical diversity and richness in the diet of our ruminants. All right, in essence, fat balance is part of a person's health plan, right? Okay, on the human microbiome. We're not a ruminant, <laughs> no, but we have a kind of a rumen-like place in our digestive tract, and that is in the very basement of our digestive tract. Um, it's down here in the colon. Look, look at how bacterial populations and numbers increase as you move down. That's a big, big change by the time you reach the colon. This is the heart of our microbiome. And so when we eat plant foods in particular, now whole plant foods, not simple plant foods, whole plant foods, we don't have all the enzymes that digest those plant foods. They make it down to our colon and our microbiome gets a hold of that and it starts fermenting it. And this, my friends, is another biological bazaar. We're feeding our microbiome and it is churning out different compounds that affect our health. And one of the things we now know is that phytochemicals in the human diet, just like the ruminant diet, they're embedded in these whole plant fibers. So we're eating those in our fruits and vegetables. Our animals are out on their pastures. And in it comes, lands in the ruminant and animal, it sails on down to the lower reaches of our digestive tract. Our microbiome gets a hold of that. And voila, what we have here is another case of microbial metabolites. And so this is really, really important to consider because too often we think of nutrition as I'm just eating this carrot or I'm just eating this bowl of yogurt. While that is the case, what you're also doing is you're providing a feedstock, so to speak, to your microbiome and your microbiome turning parts of, or in some cases, a whole molecule or compound into other things. And the, the effects of some of these microbial metabolites, oh, anti-cancer, anti-inflammation, anti-diabetic, brain health, heart health, and so on. Uh, I look at all of those things and I'm like, oh, that looks a lot like what pharmaceuticals do except that they're made in our own bodies. So in some ways, the human microbiome, you, you have your own inner alchemist or your inner pharmacist right there, but leave it unnourished and your microbiome is not gonna be churning out the kinds of metabolites that have all of these kinds of effects, right? Okay, so this is a part of a person's health plan. And this is why farming practices matter so much. We want our crop 
We want our crops to be suffused with phytochemicals and a balance of fats. Uh, and that ripples on into uh, our animal foods, and it's a part of their health plan, particularly with phytochemicals. Because one thing we know about the botanical world is that Remember that slide, thousands, if not tens of thousands of different phytochemicals. You want a diversity of phytochemicals in the human diet because you want your microbiome to have as much as possible to work with so that it has the ability to churn out beneficial metabolites. All right, and so the, the way we raise these animals and crops, are we, is there massive soil disturbance, massive disruption of fetching fungi, of the way that exudates uh, tee up beneficial processes with the plant microbiome. Um, are, we, are we overusing synthetic uh, chemicals, whether it's fertilizers or pesticides and herbicides that are just scuttling and scrambling the microbiome in the soil and thus the nutrient profile in crops? So it turns out when it comes to these fab four and there is way more research information evidence and everything in the book on all of this and how it works what we know is it profoundly influences our health and so sure there's a little bit of you know you are what you eat but it runs deeper than that we really <clears throat> are what our food ate and so there's really a lot of common ground when it comes to the microbiomes so sort of a, a real foundation, whether for crops, animals, or people, because these are these biological bazaars. They're incredibly active, dynamic uh, areas where trading and exchanging is going on nonstop. And a big outcome of these biological bazaars are all of these microbial metabolites. And on the whole, we want way more beneficial than we do uh, detrimental metabolites. Huge role, as I have explained, in immunity and defense for plants, animals, and people. And this really is a form of nature's intelligence that I believe uh, if gardeners and farmers tapped more into conservation, stewardship, nurturing, and caretaking of microbiomes, we could get a lot more benefit out of the microbiomes that are there and that have always been there in the soil, the human gut, and the rumen. And so it's been a lot of information. Thank you so much for hanging in there. It, pretty much it comes down to this. If something is good for the land, for crops, and ruminants, it is good for us too. And back to sort of these series of books, really it comes down to dirt, lays out that problem. The hidden half of nature, we've got an insight and a cure. And we've got the how-to in Growing a Revolution, and that all rolls up into the consequences of agriculture for health and well-being. All right, that concludes our thought, and I think we're happy to take uh, any questions now, if there are any. Okay. And, yep, here comes Dave, great. Okay, thank you so much, Dave, and thank you, Anne. That was a really uh, wonderful presentation. So, uh, well, we can do a short Q&A. 
Um, we take audio, uh, questions from the audience, and let me just explain to the audience real quickly um, how we're going to go about it. We don't take questions directly from chat. What we do is we raise our hand in Zoom. So the, um, on the bottom of Zoom, second to the right, you'll see a reactions button. You click on the reactions button and you'll select raise your hand. And, um, and then we will pick on you in the order in which you uh, raised your hand. When it's your turn, I will unmute you and you can state where you're from and ask your question. We ask everyone to keep their questions brief and on topic. Uh, we will then be uh, the audience member asking the question. And if they do wish to ask another question, then they can raise their hand again. So let me see if there are any questions from the audience real quickly. And give me one second here. And I think you probably answered everyone's question. So um, let me ask you a couple questions here myself. Um, so, you, well, you went you went over extensively um, uh, the, on the uh, on the effects of modern culture on soil and the, the health of the soil and kind of how it works its way up. What types of modern day illnesses and, and sicknesses do you think are coming from the the poor health of our soil that's working its way up through through what we eat, what what that eats? <laughs> I don't know if that came out right, but I think you understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it did. Well, it a lot of these chronic diseases that are affecting an awful lot of folks these days they tend to be um either some kind of you know a metabolic disorder of some some sort or maybe cognitive or neurological and we know for example that omega-3s are really important to cognition and the way that our nervous system works and you sort of swamp uh, the human diet with omega-6s and so this comes in the form of uh, mostly seed oils so you know you take a safflower seed and you smash it you get the oil out of that you put that in some kind of ultra ultra processed food product and it's sort of like a pipeline of omega-6s into our diet and therefore our bodies and so that means that omega-3s are in short supply and uh, all of a sudden, you know, cognition is affected. There's been uh, studies that show sort of low levels of omega-3 uh, put people at risk for depression, for mood disorders. So if you are eating animal products, this is why it is, they really are an overlooked source of omega-3s in the human diet, but only if these, these animals truly are eating uh, on pastures with a diversity of plant species, which then makes for a diversity of phytochemicals and also living plants. That's that's a source of the omega-3s. Phytochemicals as well uh, are implicated in various kinds of um, anti you think disorders arising from too much inflammation and not enough of the cleanup crews. The, 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 the cleanup processes. And so phytochemicals, you know, it doesn't sound very sexy to say, eat phytochemicals, they're your janitor. But I'm afraid to say, um, they, are, they are just the best janitors out there. 
they're helping our bodies they're getting rid of all these dust bunnies and all of this crud that is sitting there in our cells and tissues right we don't want anything gunking up cells and tissues we want them working normally because we want normal metabolism normal cognition normal mood okay great i think we've got like a like one more minute to have a question answered um so i'd like to end on an optimistic note because so many things in this world are so scary you talked um david you talked about uh the optimism you have with regard to uh rebuilding our soil um do you see signs of it becoming more popular in you know and kind of um taking off in in ways that it may actually become prevalent or is it just more like the the farmer here and there <laughs> no i i see a lot of potential for it to really take off uh back in uh when did dirt come out back in 2007 when dirt came out there was hardly there's not much talk about soil health uh in the agricultural world let alone in the general public there's a big surge of interest in regenerative agriculture uh both among farming communities and farmers uh, but also among climate activists interested in putting carbon in the ground and taking it out of the atmosphere, and increasingly uh, from consumers as well who are interested in the kind of things that Anne was just talking about. So I see a huge potential for it to go forward. But, you know, as a geologist, I'm, I'm a little patient. Uh, I, I, I think I could see uh, regenerative agriculture sweeping through agriculture over the next 20 or 30 years. So if we think about the shape of agriculture around 2050s or the middle of this century, it might be really different than what we see today. And it's my hope that these practices that we that we can sweep under the regenerative agriculture umbrella will become the conventional agriculture of the future and that we can harvest all the attendant environmental and health benefits that would come with that. But it's, you know, it's at the start of that transition, but I'm very hopeful and optimistic because I see the interests of the environment, the economy, and our own individual and, collect, and collective public health all lining up in the direction that suggests that this is the way to go. Great. Thank you so much. And thank you, David, for that, that really extensive and wonderful presentation. Um, real quickly, uh, we're going to give the audience the opportunity to thank you as well with a cacophony of appreciation. We're going to unmute their mics. Oh, he could see it. Thank you. Fascinating. Thank you. Very fascinating. Thank you once more. Really appreciate it. As the audience, that was marvelous. That was marvelous. That's the that's happening. Yeah. All right. Love, love. Right. Thank you. Thank you. So stay tuned for our next lecturer who uh, lecturer who will be Glenn Merzer and he will be.